Whether you are just waking up or you have been awake the whole time, join Ashley and Lily each and every month as we explore sexual health topics on Wake Up to Sexual Health. Wake Up to Sexual Health is brought to you with funds from the Health Resources and Services Administration Grant, or HRSA, number G2-54940-01, awarded to Telesane. The views expressed in the podcast are those of the creators and do not reflect the views of HRSA. Welcome back to Wake Up to Sexual Health. Today we are going to be talking about bias and implicit bias. Unfortunately, my partner Ashley is out sick. We wish her a speedy recovery and hopefully next month she will be back voice intact and ready to discuss our next topic. We hear about bias or disparity in healthcare on all the news outlets. Healthcare professionals take courses on implicit bias to address those disparities. But what does all of that actually mean? Medical news states implicit bias is a bias a person is unaware of. This is the hardest bias to address because, because, simply put, one has to become aware of it. Other types of bias, such as overt racism or sexism, comes from a place of known intolerance. So from the onset, healthcare is fighting two fronts, implicit bias or unknown inclinations, preferences, or judgments, and blatant prejudices. So what does this mean in the real world? It basically contributes to already established systems of racism and the social structure of the patriarchy in plain language not all healthcare is equal. According to a 10-year research literature review by IVW Mena et al. titled A Decade of Studying Implicit Racial Ethnic Bias in Healthcare, Provider Using the Implicit Association Test, indicated that people of color had worse outcomes in healthcare than their white counterparts. Mortality rates are higher amongst black, Latina, and indigenous people. Bias also impacts diagnosis and treatment. So not just quantity of life, but quality too. So let's look at an example. A journal article titled, Gender Disparity in Analgesic Treatment of Emergency Department Patients with Acute Abdominal Pain found women were less likely to receive pain meds than men and were given lower dosages or types of pain meds. Men were more preferably given opiates than women. Other studies indicate women are more likely to receive psychotherapy medication and treatment for pain. This disparity in treatment leads or misleads others into creating or solidifying bias associated with mental health treatments. For instance, If women are prescribed psychotherapy medications for pain more than their men counterparts, then the numbers of women on mental health medications seems higher than men. And this leads us into our great discussion on correlation and causation. If you follow the example given, the correlation of women needing more mental health treatment appears. A correlation is simply a relationship or connection between two things. 
As you can see in the example, there does appear to be a connection between women on medication for mental health treatment and women suffering from mental health issues. Sometimes people use this correlation information, sometimes purposely and other times unintentionally, to mean one causes the other or causation. So causation simply is a cause and effect. People may start to develop or solidify a belief or bias that mental health issues or the cause are more prevalent in women, the effect. So sometimes bias is really hard to see and to source out. One really has to start making a distinction between correlation and causation, especially when reading studies and healthcare information. So a lot of times I think people wonder what gives um, people the right to discuss certain topics and others as an authority or a specialist or, um, if you will, a reputable source for discussing a particular topic. And in my case, one, I do work in healthcare, but I, I am a non-clinician healthcare worker, which means I am not treating patients. I am not a clinical provider. I work with clinical providers, but I myself am not a clinical provider. The other being that my bachelor's is actually in anthropology, which I think we've talked about a little bit before on the show. So what that means is that I'm trained to think in a, a very specific way. And each degree is taught to think in a specific way. And sometimes that is a long-term critical thinking. Sometimes that's short-term critical thinking. Sometimes that's um, the quickest path to resolution. It just depends on your degree and your area of study. So in anthropology, we are taught to think in a non-biased fashion, meaning we have to set aside our own beliefs, our own structures, our own social structures that we're raised in. We have to not only set them aside, but we have to recognize that they're there. So implicit bias then becomes awareness and bias. So we have to set those things aside. A really good example of my experience with bias has to do with a couple of things that I encountered throughout my studies in anthropology. The first that really hit me in the feels um, was gender and uh, genital mutilation. So obviously, as a woman, I have very, very strong feelings about people mutilating women's genitalia um, under the guise of um, sanctimonious religious ceremony or under the guise of controlling women or however you want to look at that particular topic. So when I began doing some research on genitalia mutilation in the anthropological perspective, I had to set aside my own beliefs, my own feminist upbringing, my own ideas on what it means to be a woman, my own thoughts on unclean medical practices, uh, a lot of different things that, that come up when thinking about genital mutilation when you are from the Western world. And so while reading those things, obviously my first instinct was to think, um, first off, put down whatever dirty knife you're using to do this mutilation with. Um, and then the second thought being, save the girls. But in reality, if I set those things aside and look at it from an anthropological perspective, genital mutilation serves a purpose in that culture. 
And the the girls that do have genital mutilation, the women, I shouldn't call them girls, they, they are women, um, they may happen to have this happen to them when they are still young girls, but they ultimately are women. Um, when they sit down to have this procedure done or when they go through the ceremony, um, most of it is voluntary. They are not being forced to do this because it's part of their culture and their, their societal structure. And so when you look at it from that perspective, um, you're setting aside your biases. So that's how anthropologists are taught to kind of think, is to put aside our own thoughts, our own biases, our own structures of belief, um, our own societal structures, and examine things um, in and of their, their own selves within that particular culture, within that society, within that structure. And so it's just a different way to um, recognize our own, our own um, issues that we may have and our own biases. And so if I'm taught to think like that, you would think then that means that, you know, anthropologists don't have any bias. Ah, uh, wrong. We have tons of biases. The point is, is that we recognize them for what they are so that we don't put them into our research. So if I'm looking at something and I get a very strong emotional feeling of they shouldn't do this, I need to examine why am I thinking that way? Am I thinking that way because of my own structures, because of our own beliefs, because of the way I was raised? Um, or am I thinking that way because it is something that's really wrong? That really doesn't matter when you're looking at it from an anthropological point of view. It's not if something is right or wrong. It's it is and why does it exist? Um, within what structure, within what context, within, you know. So to say that anthropologists are without bias would be uh, wholly inaccurate. Uh, we're just trained to recognize our bias and then try and set it aside. And so the first time in healthcare that I encountered implicit bias was because we had to take implicit bias training, or in other words, um, no-no bias training. So... <laughs> Know is in know thyself, know is in knowledge, and know is in don't do it um, training so that you didn't carry that over into your treatment of patients because that is what causes the disparity in healthcare. So now that we've covered why I am able to talk about this topic, please know that my experience as a clinician is zero. So my observations are either vicariously through the clinicians that I do work with or the research that I've done on this topic. Now that we have laid the foundation for what bias is, let's look at it from a numbers perspective. A National Healthcare and Disparities 2019 report found white patients were more likely to receive better care than black, Native American, Alaskan Native, Hispanic, and Native Hawaiian patients. A 2019 article, Training to Reduce LGBTQ-Related Bias Among Medical, Nursing, and Dental Students and Providers, found that more than 80% had implicit bias towards the LGBTQIA community. Now remember, implicit bias means not very aware. A study titled Explicit and Implicit Disability Attitudes of Healthcare Providers in 2020 stated 83.6 healthcare professionals preferred, preferred patients without disability now think about the number of people who are seeking health care who have some sort of disability 
And then think about the 83.6% of the healthcare professionals caring for them preferring not to have them as patients. Multiple recent studies show significant bias towards patients with obesity. Even something as simple as living in rural areas can impact your care since some studies indicate rural patients are considered to be older, lack consistent health care, and to be uneducated. All this leads to higher morbidity and mortality rates amongst people of color. For instance, black people are more likely to die faster with diseases such as heart disease, cancer, and AIDS than their white counterparts. The CDC has reported that black women mortality rates during childbirth are double the national average at 43 compared to 17 per 100,000 births in the white community. So if you just look at the research and you look at the numbers and the percentages, you start to get this big picture. And in the big picture, people of color are receiving poor health care, are receiving higher mortality and morbidity rates, are not receiving the same care as their white counterparts. And the numbers are reflecting that. Simply put, um, people of color are dying at faster rates of diseases which are cared for in their white counterparts and create longer lifespans. So it's not just the years or the expectancy of life or any of those things. Um, it's a culmination of those things plus treatments so if a black patient were to come in and be treated for heart disease, they're treated less aggressively than their white counterparts. And what that can equate to is a shorter time frame of life for the, the person of color. So this disparity, you can see it in the average lifespan when you look at the numbers for a white person compared to that of a black person or compared to that of a Latina. But it's much more than just lifespans. Um, it, it goes all the way down to treatment. So people who are seen as obese um, by the people who are the healthcare professionals that are treating them are treated much differently than the people who are perceived of as a healthy weight. Or um, my favorite is that overweight people are considered to be unhealthy versus thin people who are, who are considered to be healthy. And research actually indicates that that's not true, that your thinness does not automatically mean that you are healthy. Um, there are instances where, sure, obesity can impact health care, but there are also instances where thinness impacts health care or overall health, excuse me. So to treat the one, the obesity side, as definitely that's their their main issue with their health um, is ridiculous because they may not be unhealthy at all. They may have, you know, a great heart. They may have great circulation. They may have all of these wonderful things that are working in their favor. Um, they may, you know, lead extremely healthy lifestyles where they exercise um, or eat more plant-based than, you know, meat or moderate their meat, whatever it is that you value as healthy. Um, they may be doing all of the right things, but yet they're treated like their main problem is that they're obese. 
And that's all that the doctor or their treating um, clinician sees. And that is a problem because then they are not given the same treatment, um, life-saving measures, um, all of these things that, that equate to the disparity in healthcare. And that's a problem. It's a problem not only that everyone is aware of in the healthcare field, because obviously we took the implicit bias training. Um, it is completely and wholly supported by research. Um, and yet it still exists because it is also built into already established systems. So when we talk about systems, we're talking about the things that operate behind the scenes, um, such as systems of racism, um, systems of healthcare disparity. So these systems are already in place and they're actively happening, which means all of us are participants um, in those systems because we live in this society. It doesn't mean that we support the systems. There is a difference. Uh, it just means that we are active participants because we live within the system. So the healthcare disparity um, that we are aware of doesn't mean that it stops just because we're aware of it. There are actually things that um, are recommended to, to help create an equity amongst um, all people who seek healthcare treatment. In the end, bias equates to, at the very least, an increase in poor healthcare treatment and at most, death. In other words, disparity can be deadly. So how do we address bias? And the first would be exposure. And you think, oh, that's so simple. We can expose ourselves to different cultures and different races and different societies and different structures um, and be better people. If that were the case, then we wouldn't have a system that's already showing disparity. And if that were the case, then we wouldn't have racism. So we know that exposure is not just enough. And we also know that exposure is limited. If you live, you know, 70, 80 miles outside of the nearest urban environment, the likelihood that you're going to see a vast, diverse population is limited. The likelihood that you're going to see homeless people is almost nil. Um, the likelihood that you're going to see certain populations just decreases. But you may be more aware than your urban counterparts of rural poorness, of, you know, people still who are actually living without running water. So exposure varies based on where you live. So you have to actively expose yourself, which is much harder to do because when implicit bias, as we stated, is something that you're not aware of. You don't know that you have it. So if you don't know you have it, how do you go out and expose yourself to it? You see the conundrum there. So the next is education. Education by far, obviously I'm biased because I'm an educator. Um, my master's is in education. So here comes my bias. Education um, is the number one deterrent for lots of bad things happening, and we've talked about this before, um, in your life. So if education is the number one deterrent, then obviously if people are educated on different cultures, different races, different societies, um, all of these structures that exist, um, such as you know race, that is a structure, gender, that is a structure, um, democratic nation structure, Western world structure, all of these structures, if we are educated on all of these things, 
then we will be much more aware of our biases and we can then seek out exposure. The other thing that really helps, obviously, is diversity. If you are exposed to different populations, then the likelihood that you're going to be more accepting or have an understanding or be aware of your bias is just, I mean, it's obviously increased. Um, a great example that I talk about when I'm teaching um, younger populations or younger people, sorry, the word population gets overused in my world, but when you're teaching younger people such as like high school and middle school, a really good example that I bring up in, in rural areas or sheltered areas is being aware of homelessness. So there are a lot of stereotypes that surround people who are homeless. Um, and a lot of them are fear-based stereotypes, which are, you know, that they're dirty or that they carry disease or that they're violent or have mental health issues, that they refuse to work within the systems, you know, that they're anarchists or sometimes it's as simple as thinking that all of them are veterans back from war that couldn't handle society. So there are all these, these stereotypes that surround um, homelessness. But when you actually see homelessness every day and you encounter those people and, you know, you offer them water or, or um, you talk to them and, and find out, you know, why they're homeless or the, the line of events that took place for them to end up where they are, you find out that they're, they're just people. They're people. Sometimes they do choose to be homeless. That is absolutely a thing. Um, sometimes a series of really unfortunate and sad traumatic events unfolded that led to their homelessness. Um, sometimes you find that they're cleaner than a lot of people that you know. Um, sometimes you find that your idea of cleanliness is a little askew. Um, and so just exposure and education and the diversity. So being able to see those people, encounter those people every day, to where at some point you have conversations, you see their day-to-day -day workings, you see their day-to-day -day life, um, actually helps you address your own bias. And so that's where, you know, just living in a diverse community um, helps you. The other thing is awareness. So being aware that bias exists, being aware that you have implicit bias. I have implicit bias. Everyone has implicit bias. And there are reasons for that that we'll get into. Um, they're they're deep-seated into our primal selves. But there are reasons that those, those boundaries in our brain exist. And then the last thing is to question yourself. And to question yourself a lot. So everyone, I think, has um, moments where they think something. And they're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I just thought that. That was terrible. Um, and that's, I, I mean, again, I find that this is pretty normal. You have to ask yourself, why did I just think that? Um, if, if a homeless person or a person of color walks by your car and you're stopped at a, a, a stoplight in downtown Little Rock, do you reach over and lock your door? Why did you do that? And you have to ask yourself, why did I do that? What did I think was going to happen? Why did I think that was going to happen? And then once you start to question yourself, um, you then have to question yourself when you don't do it. So if you stop at a stoplight in, you know, tiny town, wherever, 
do you also have that same behavior? So is it not just the people of color? Is it the environment that triggers you? Is it all of these things in culmination? Is it um, fear-based? Is it a stereotype? Is it So you just start asking yourself all of these questions, and you question over and over until you can piece it all together. And then you surrender yourself to say, okay, I'm not going I'm going to actively try to not do those things anymore. And sometimes you will still do them. They are automatic because, again, we all have implicit bias. Even when you become aware of it and it is just a bias, sometimes, again, you cannot deny and you cannot force yourself to behave in a certain manner, which brings us to why do we think and categorize things the way that we do? Again, when training in anthropology, I was taught to keep my bias in check, as we discussed, and I've already discussed that it's a continual process. It's not something that you address one time and it's cured. Um, Continually and constantly checking in with different groups and populations to listen to their perspective, so biases are being reevaluated, is absolutely the best way to address bias. The reason that our brains do these things, though, is actually a survival mechanism brought over from, you know, evolution. Our primal brains, our lizard brains, our ape brains, um, whatever you like to call that part of your brain, actually taught you to categorize things, and you did this for safety purposes. So you do try and keep in mind that bias can be both negative and positive, But our brains are constantly categorizing and keeping things in check. This is a survival mechanism and has kept our species growing. And due to the nature of how our brains work, biases are easy to occur and difficult to dispel. It is constant work, but in my super very humble opinion, worth it because in healthcare, it could mean the difference between life or death. So you might be wondering, well, what is this categorization process? And it's it's pretty simple. Um, I like to use the example of file cabinets when I'm discussing how my brain categorizes things, but everybody's brain works obviously a bit different. Um, but in mine, I have all of these file cabinets. And if you think back to when I was somewhere between um, ape and human, pick any one of your favorites, whether, you know, it be Homo erectus or Neanderthal or whatever. We had this system and the system was simple. Um, Did we eat that and we got sick? Okay, let's remember it and don't eat it again because we don't want to be sick again. Categorize that. Oh, did we encounter this animal and it killed our friend Bob? Um, Stay away from that animal. Categorized. Um, did we find this one thing and it was delicious and no one got sick and everyone liked it? Uh, categorize. And so all of these things that we encounter on our day-to-day life, all of these things we see, all of the things we experience, all the things that we feel on an emotional level, they're all registered in our brain and then put into our little file cabinets. And we order those things whatever works best for us. Again, brains are individual. I organize mine by, a lot of times, by subject because that's how I look at things is through subject lenses. So through structures, through um, culture, through all of these different various file cabinets. I also have within those subjects the danger zones that, you know, don't encounter this again, don't do this again. 
Um, I see it especially play out with my anxiety. So obviously I have, um, not obviously, you may not know this, I have anxiety. The obvious part is that I have triggers for my anxiety. And so when I talk about triggers, there are definitely certain things that if they take place, they're going to trigger my anxiety to go into overdrive and the likelihood that I'm going to have a panic attack increases tremendously. So naturally, I try and control those triggers. And so they're placed in kind of this, this folder in my file cabinet that's like, um, avoid at all costs. But the thing is, you can't control everything. And some of my triggers come from others, not because they're trying to trigger me, but because um, of things that they do or say. And one of them is, all you have to do is walk in and say, my stomach hurts. I'm immediately put into overdrive. Immediate. Because I have an extreme anxiety about, about vomit. Um, and so it's just instantaneous. Well, I can't control how other people's stomachs are feeling or the fact that they're voicing it out loud. Maybe that makes them feel better and more in control of their stomach hurting. Um, and so obviously that is a bad thing in my file cabinet, but for others it's not. Um, it's not a bad thing at all. Some people are not phased at all by vomit. So it's, again, everybody's brain works different and everybody has these different categorization processes. But for the most part, there are some that are immediate triggers for most people. Um, the first being snakes and spiders. And the reason those things trigger the way that they do, some argue that research shows that they are just evolutionarily passed down in our brains from one person to another to be extremely terrified of snakes. The other is that um, in our Western judo-christian world we are taught to fear snakes um the other being they don't have legs um so they don't quite fit into a lot of categories in our brain the way that we break things down because all other most other reptiles have legs and so they just don't quite fit and when something doesn't fit we immediately put it into this like taboo area and those taboo areas a lot of times end up being um seeped in fear and so that's just how our brain categorizes things. So when you have these biases and they pop up in your head, let's go back to the example of um, driving in downtown Little Rock, um, homeless person walks by your car and you lock your door. There's a fear-based categorization there, most likely. Um, it may be experiential. You may have had a bad experience once. It may be non experiential meaning you heard it vicariously or my favorite is it's new based or news based so news based fears are extremely interesting um not because they're cool but because we will listen to others of our species and then file those categories as well so if you're constantly watching the news and you you hear you know homeless people are on the rise um, the number of homeless is, is rising. Um, the number of violent crimes taking place within homeless communities or against non-homeless communities is on the rise. Or, you know, that they're this or that or whatever is being perpetuated at that time. Then your brain will categorize that and will put it in this category even though you have had no experience with it yourself. 
Um, and so that's where exposure and education and diversity and awareness and questioning yourself really comes into play. Because if you look at those things and you have these immediate reactions, that just means that you've categorized it somewhere in your brain. Do you need to uncategorize it? Do you need to move it? Does it need to stay? Um, those are things that you're asking yourselves. So that is kind of a summation of bias and how it might play out in the real world and also how it plays out statistically and research-based in the healthcare industry. So being aware um, was one of the things. Education is another. Exposure was another. And then questioning yourself, again, another. Um, we were able to cover all of that in just one episode of um, Wake Up to Sexual Health. So now all you have to do is go out into the world and question a lot and expose yourself, not in a gross way, um, but in a healthy way to other cultures and educations and um, ways of life and living and people and, and surround yourself by a diverse group of people. And when you have a question, under no circumstances does anyone owe you an explanation or to educate you. But if you've surrounded yourself with enough diversity, you are going to encounter situations where you might want to check in with someone that you're trusted um, to say, hey, can you explain this to me? Is, is this cool or not cool? Like, how do you perceive this in your world, in your structure, and in your, your culture? And asking those questions can lead you down a path of realization um, that you never thought possible. And so... That is um, the end-all, be-all of bias on our end. Thank you so much for joining us on Wake Up to Sexual Health. It is always more interesting when the lovely Ashley Connors is here to give her perspective since she is a clinician. Um, and again, I wish that she was well. Uh, we do wish her a speedy recovery. Can't wait to have her back for next month because in August, we will be covering trans law and sexual health, which is an extremely hot topic right now um, because so many laws are being passed or overturned. And it looks like from a nihilist point of view that things could go south very quickly. And I don't mean Southern United States. I mean badly. So tune in next month. Um, we hope to have a special guest with us. We are trying to work that out currently. And we do, again, hope that Ashley is able to join us next month. So thank you for joining us on Wake Up to Sexual Health. And we will see you next time. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future topics, you can email us at sane at uams.edu. That's S-A-N-E at U-A-M-S dot E-D-U. You can also visit our website at I-D-H-I dot U-A-M-S dot E-D-U slash telesane.